it's good to be back at Peace Tabernacle. Amen. Uh, bad for you. You got to look at me for two services. But uh, we're glad to be here and thankful to be in the house of the Lord in the presence of God. See some familiar faces, everybody here. And uh, we'll move quickly into the word of the Lord uh, this morning. If you have your Bibles and would like to turn to us to Isaiah chapter 53, and then we will go to the book of the Revelation chapter 13, Isaiah 53. I have to read from Isaiah since we've been here last. We have uh, a brand new grandbaby. Amen. His name is Isaiah. If you would like to see pictures, Sister Moody has a phone full. You can see her after service, and she will be happy. Maybe you can twist her arm and do to showing you some of those. Amen. Isaiah 53. Read from the word of the Lord. A lengthy reading here in Isaiah 53. We will read the entire chapter. Please don't groan. It's only 12 verses long. And uh, if you uh, just get completely wore out and tired and can't stand anymore uh, in the middle of it, you can sit down. But otherwise, I'd like for us to stand uh, for the reading of the word of the Lord. Who hath believed our report, Isaiah writes, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. When we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Aren't you thankful that he did that? Aren't you thankful that Jesus Christ took our griefs and sorrows to Calvary? Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Of course, we understand that this passage in the Old Testament is a prophetic passage. It is speaking of... Jesus Christ, it is speaking of the Messiah, the Lord, the Savior. But he was wounded, verse 5, for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, 
and was numbered with the transgressors. And he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressor. I know that you don't have to be very smart or have been around church or the Word of God very long to understand and know that this is a painted portrait in words of Jesus Christ. What He did for you and I on Calvary's cross, what, uh, what He came to do, become the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world came and bore our sins, our transgressions, our iniquities. Can we just take a moment all over the congregation, lift our hands and voices in thanksgiving for the sacrifice that was made for us. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we thank you. We come with grateful hearts today, recognizing, remembering, understanding the sacrifice that you made for each and every individual in this place today and beyond the doors of this assembly. God, we're grateful from the bottom of our heart for the great hope that we have that's been given through the shed blood of the Lamb. God, we're thankful for the hope that we've been given through an empty tomb and a resurrected Savior. God, we're grateful that you have imparted this to us. We thank you, Lord, and we'll praise you. Amen. You can be seated in Jesus' name. One more verse of Scripture, and we will read that book of the Revelation. The 13th chapter and verse number 8. From here we, we will point ourselves in this direction and move toward uh, the Gospels. Revelation 13 and 8 says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship Him. That's talking about the beast in this context here. It's not talking about the Lord. It's saying in, in, a, in a time of, of, of tribulation, the beast, the antichrist, the dragon, the context of all of that, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship Him. But there's an exclusion here in the Scripture. It says, whose names are not written in the book of life. All of those whose names is not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Somebody look at your neighbor and say, God's got a plan for you. That's good, isn't it? Aren't you thankful? Aren't you thankful God's got a, got a plan for us? Let me, let me just submit something else to you this morning in the beginning, if I, if I can, just kind of get our minds thinking in this direction. God has a plan for every individual in this place today. God has a plan for your life. Do you know that God has a plan for himself as well? Amen. God has a plan for himself. Somebody say, thank you, Lord. I want to, if I can, uh, take us to the Gospels in this, uh, from last Sunday to this, and that particular time period would have been the time period leading up to the Passover, that portion where Jesus comes to Jerusalem. And we will uh, take just a few minutes this morning, if we can, and talk about some of those events in the life of Christ as he is preparing himself to go to Calvary's cross, as he is making uh, his way to Jerusalem, he and his disciples, there are some events, and we will not even endeavor to uh, cover all of those. Time would not permit, and uh, it would be, uh, we probably couldn't even read the five or six chapters that we would need to read in the Gospels. Pick whichever one you want to to cover that period of time, but if we can, we'll just take a uh, 
take a few minutes and, and hit the highlights and talk about some of the things. Now, understanding Jesus uh, is walking, and we'll kind of put ourselves in that time and in the shoes of, of the disciples there as they go. It's a special time of the year. These verses are recorded if you if you don't already know and want to make note. Uh, Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12 through 20, kind of the beginning through the end of those uh, books, talking about the, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the Passover is the backdrop of this, this event. It is the, uh, the consummation of the gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can go back to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter number 12 if you, if you like, and you can read the story of the Exodus and how God spoke to Moses and proclaimed to him what he was going to do and how he was going to lead the children of Israel out of the land of bondage, out of the land of Egypt. Just a few verses of Scripture there. Pardon me. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. All right, let's get the, get the picture and take a lesson from Exodus chapter 12. God is about to bring Israel out of the land of bondage. God is about to change them from, from slaves and, and, and uh, people who have lived in bondage for several hundred years, people who have uh, uh, learned to live with the Egyptian culture and have learned to, to, to live with this uh, thing in their life. And God is about to bring them out and make them a people unto God. He's going to raise them up and carry them to the land of promise and God God begins to speak to Moses and says, Moses, number one, first thing, we're going to change the calendar. This is going to be from now on, this time is going to start the first of the year for you. Every year, you're not going to celebrate the first of the year when you're used to celebrating. You're going to celebrate it. It's going to be marked by the Passover. It's going to be marked by the Exodus. I don't know about you. But that says to me there's a special place in God's heart for new beginnings, for starting over. Especially, I know I'm probably the only one here that's ever failed and, and messed up and had to start over. Had to come to an altar and fall on my knees and, and shed some tears in repentance and start over. But I believe that God gives us opportunity for new beginnings. And he, he teaches us that in the Passover when we look back into the Old Testament and see the things that God did and how we dwelt with Israel. One of the things that we learn is it's all right to start over. When you fail, when you mess up, when you stand up and dust yourself off and say, well, I made a great big fat hairy mess out of that. God says, come on, you can do it. Just start over. Go from here. It's okay. Aren't you thankful for that opportunity? Amen. The Passover. Jesus and his disciples, they're headed to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. It was a commanded observation. It was a feast that had been celebrated in the time of Israel since the actual Passover in Egypt. They Every year at this time they had a feast. They had seven days of celebrating this event where God brought them out of the land of bondage. 
We were once in bondage, but God delivered us with a strong arm and a mighty hand. He defeated the enemy at every play, and God made us victorious. This is what they celebrated. This is what they remembered. This is what they thought about. Sounds a lot like our salvation, doesn't it? Where God brought us out of bondage to the enemy, and He delivered us and, and made us victorious in Him. It was both a celebration, everybody likes a party, but it was also a teaching event. They, they used it to teach their children, to remind themselves and to teach them children about what God had done for them in the past. In Exodus 20, we find the Ten Commandments, right? The moral laws of God. It deals with both our relationship to God and our relationship to our fellow man. Exodus 20 and 2, God says, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, uh, out of the house of bondage. Hey, I'm, I'm about to give you some commands, some laws, but let me remind you again who I am. And he goes back to this very event where I brought you out of the land of Egypt to, to let them remember who he really was. I have a friend, Brother Jorge Ortiz, he's, he's kind of a strange mixture. He's Hispanic, but he was raised in Israel. He was actually going to school to be a rabbi in Israel. When he found Pentecost, God filled him with the Holy Ghost. Now he's a one God apostolic preacher and missionary. He said, he said the Hebrew word for Egypt means limitation. Me being the uh, diligent soul that I am, some say skeptical, but uh, me being the diligent soul that I am, I, I checked on him. The word is Misraim. It carries the idea of borders, of boundaries, of distress, in the sense of being closed in because of Egypt's borders and because it was divided actually with the border. It was used for the land of Egypt, most of the time when you see Egypt translated in the King James Version, it is from this Hebrew word. The word Passover is from that event of the last plague. The death angel would come and, and slay the firstborn son of the family. But at God's command, the Israelites applied the blood of the lamb to the doorpost of their home, and the angel would pass over their house. Passover was the celebration that honored the miracle of God delivering His people from their limitations, from their borders. Maybe somebody needs to hear it. Maybe somebody needs to get it today. Maybe I'm the only one in the house that's ever felt like he was hemmed in. Nowhere to go. Don't know where the answer is coming from. Don't know where to turn. No way out. I cannot in my human ability find the answer, the direction gotten myself into such a mess that the best answer looks to be, why don't you just give up? Job's wife said, predicament that you're in, sir, you might as well just curse God and die. I won't ask for a show of hands, but the rhetorical question is, has anybody ever felt that way? I know I sure have. Brother Moody, a, a child of God shouldn't ever feel that way, and that's probably true. But sometimes my humanity 
gets in the way of, of my spirituality. And you just wonder how in the world. But God in His omnipotence, God in His divinity, reaches down and delivers His people out of the land of limitations. He, he looses them from their bondage. Israel, Egypt has you right where it wants you. Child of God, sometimes it seems like life or the world or the enemy has you right where it wants you. Hemmed in, limited, locked up, locked down, locked in. But can I remind you today that the hand of God is able to bring us out and through every situation and circumstance that we face. My, my, teach Brother Moody. You want to preach here. Amen. <clears throat> One word from the Almighty God. God looked at the death angel and said, go. One word from the Almighty God. And death was loosed on humanity. But... The blood of the Lamb. Mm. The blood of the Lamb covered the house. The blood of the Lamb covered those who in faith uh, obeyed the command to apply the blood. And God then delivered Israel from bondage, from their limitations, from their distress. Passover was more than just an event of testimony of the past. It was also a testimony of the things to come because in that Passover we see the types and the shadows of God's plan. Can I declare to you this morning something that you already know? Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb. His blood loosed me from the verdict of death. That's why we sing power in the blood. That's why we, we, we're not being gory when we sing, Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Because we understand 1 John 1 and 7, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Are you thankful that the blood has been applied to your life today? Lift your hands and voice one more time to the Lord, if you would, and thank Him for the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. The blood of Jesus sets me free. The blood of Jesus cleanses me. The blood draws me near to God. Ephesians 2 and 13, But in Christ Jesus, you who are afar off have been made near by the blood of Christ. I'm in a covenant relationship with God. Hebrews 13 and 20, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Amen. Thankful for the blood. Thankful for that Passover. Amen. <clears throat> Isn't it interesting, and we'll move on from this, that God provided everything that they needed. He provided for them the blood. He provided for them his, his hand of victory over Egypt. But God didn't magically transport them out of the land of Egypt. No, they had to gather up their things and walk out on their own. It's a choice. It's a choice. Look at your neighbor and say, it's your choice. Amen. What you do with the victory that God has provided. Amen. Felt a little kick back there. I said it's your choice what you do with the victory that God has provided. 
Oh, we can we 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 can poke out our lip until it plows a furrow in front of us everywhere that we go. But the truth of the matter is God has still provided for you the victory. What we've got to do is get our feet on the floor, square our shoulders, poke out our chest and say, I'm going to walk in victory. I'm going to live in victory. I'm going to prevail in victory. I am not down. I am up. I am not low. I am high because God has provided everything that I need. Amen. Does that mean we'd never have a down day? No, sir. It means at the end of the day, I'm going to look up and say, God's still on the throne. I'm still a child of the Most High. We're going to go forward. Amen. Amen. Somebody say God has a plan. We see here in the last closing hours of Jesus Christ's earthly ministry, just a few hours left and, and so much to teach and if we could imagine as we put ourselves there, perhaps the sense of urgency that is upon Jesus Christ. The disciples are a little bit confused, even though there are signs, even though they have been told they have not completely put all the pieces of the puzzle together and what they have put together, at least here, they're not willing yet to accept because... In their minds, and I know you, you've heard it many, many times, their expectations were that the Messiah was going to come. They believed, they understood. Their, the entirety of their faith was that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. But they were expecting a natural kingdom, a earthly kingdom. They were expecting Him to rise to the throne of Israel, defeat the Romans, to, to put them out and to establish Israel as a kingdom on earth as it was in the days of David. Amen. And so we see as the week begins on that Sunday, and perhaps last Sunday you heard a message or was taught a lesson about the day that we call Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry Jesus Christ makes His way from Bethany. He is headed toward Jerusalem to begin to celebrate the Passover. And as He is on His way, He turns to two of His disciples and He says, Go to the city that is just beyond here. Go to Bethphage and, and there you're going to find a colt. And it's going to be tied up and I want you to, to get it and to bring it to me. Now that's a pretty good miracle in itself when you understand that they go to the place that Jesus told them, apparently no indication that Jesus was there previously. He spent the night in Bethany. He didn't go there earlier and tie the thing up to send there, so he knew where it was in his omniscience. But uh, Brother Mike said, Here, here's, the, here's the miracle to me. They go there, and, and at his word, he's already told them what they're going to encounter. They go there, they find the colt right where he said, they untie it and turn it loose. And they start taking it to Jesus. The owner shows up and says, hey, hang on just a minute. Where are you going with my donkey? Now, that's the equivalent of you and I this morning leaving the church, going out in the parking lot, and somebody's driving off in your car. You don't just wave and say, have a good time. Try to bring it back to me in one piece. 
there's going to be some jumping and some shouting and some dialing 911. He says, hey, where are you going with my colt? Jesus had already told them what to say. The Lord has need of it. They just spoke the words of God. He said, fine, take it. They lead it to take it to Jesus. That, that, that's a miracle in my book. They take the colt to Jesus. The Bible says they put their clothes on his back. He gets it and he, he, begin, he rides it into Jerusalem. Now, I've always thought that, well, if you're riding a donkey, you know, there's the horse and then there's the donkey. Some of my first memories, Sister Grant, of, of donkeys were donkey basketball games at JCM. I don't ever remember it. You're familiar with donkey basketball games, right? The donkey's out there, you get on the back, and you try to play basketball. They don't typically just go where you want them to go. They don't typically just... They have a reputation for being stubborn. And I always thought, well, that's kind of odd that Jesus rode a donkey. As I began to study, I began to see and realize that the truth of the matter is the donkey was was held in pretty high regard. In fact, many of the kings of Israel rode donkeys. It was the Gentiles that rode their horses. It was Alexander the Great who was known for his great steed and stallion as he conquered the world before the time of Christ. It was Alexander the Great who was, was when they spoke of him, spoke of his great steed. But the Hebrew kings rode their donkeys and they used them. They, they were a type of peace. They were, used to, they were used to signify the king has already conquered and he is coming in peace. The Bible tells us that this particular cult was one upon which never a man sat. He had never been ridden. He had never been broken. What was Christ trying to tell us? What was God trying to say to us? What was God trying to speak to us through this uh, uh, other than what He was trying to say to Israel? I believe that, that God was trying to tell us, trying to explain to us, uh, trying to reiterate and underscore and underline that this is not an earthly kingdom. This is an everlasting kingdom, a spiritual kingdom. The misconception that Jesus battled was the idea that we've already talked about. Messiah was coming to set up his earthly kingdom. But the reality was he was coming to set up a spiritual kingdom. Jesus said to the woman at the well, The time has come when God is seeking true worshipers, they that worship him in spirit and in truth. That's the real world. That's the real world. Somebody said, I'm not a natural being having a spiritual experience. I'm a spiritual being having a natural experience. I think that's probably closer to the reality of the thing. Amen. We are created in the image of God. God is a spirit. 
Jesus came to establish an everlasting kingdom. 2 Peter 1 and 11 declares, For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus declared emphatically, Heaven and earth will pass away. He came to establish an everlasting kingdom. It can't be earthly because earth is temporary. What are you trying to say, Brother Moody? I'm trying to say that the real world is the spiritual world. Nothing in this life lasts. I I think Jesus in the closing hours of his earthly ministry was trying to underscore and emphasize the truth and get people to open their spiritual perception and look beyond what we see with our natural eyes. It is real. You can deny it if you want to, but spirituality is in your DNA. Spirituality is something that God put in the heart of man. You've heard the analogy, I'm sure. Somebody said there's a God-shaped hole in every one of our lives. There's a God-shaped hole in my life. The recipe of my existence requires the ingredient of spirituality. Anybody ever tasted of something, tasted uh, that you were familiar with and you knew what it was supposed to taste like, but something was a little bit off. Something was missing. So, man, that, that needs another ingredient. Our life is exactly that way. In order to be whole, we need the ingredient that only a connection with God can supply. It's like the jigsaw puzzle. How frustrating is it to get all 499 pieces put together and number 500 is missing? I don't know if it's under the table or slid under the rug or fell out of the box, but the picture's just not whole. I don't care how beautifully it is, how how perfectly it's painted, it doesn't matter. If it's missing that one piece, whatever goes in that one spot completes the puzzle. It's not complete without it. People try to fill that hole with everything. They try to fill it with money. They try to fill it with fame and drugs and immorality and relationships and power. But the truth of the matter is nothing really fits in that God-shaped hole except what God designed to fit there. And when you allow God, when you allow that ingredient to come and fill that place, it completes the picture. It completes the life. Amen. Jesus said again to that woman at the well, he uses water as an analogy, but he's not really talking about water, is he? He says, you drink this natural water and you're going to thirst again. It really doesn't satisfy, but for just a moment. You're trying to fill a God-shaped hole with a natural, earthly, carnal remedy. But if you drink the water that I give to you, it's going to satisfy you. You'll never thirst again. In fact, it will be its own source inside of you, a, a wellspring. What are you trying to say, Brother Moody? With the advent of the kingdom of Christ, God has given us something far greater than the citizenship to any country in this world. Child of God, you are a citizen of the kingdom 
of God. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of that colt and they strolled and they laid their, their coats in the way and they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed be the king that comes in the name of the Lord. Not only did they fulfill the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, they ushered him in and said, yes, Lord, we want to be a part of your kingdom. Establish your kingdom. We want to be a part of that. And it establishes him as king on the throne of that spiritual kingdom. Why is that important? Because that spiritual kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Because in that spiritual kingdom, the laws of this earth don't necessarily always apply. In that spiritual kingdom, uh, bad sometimes can be good. And the things that the enemy uses against us, God can turn them around and make them bless us. I'm glad I'm a part of the kingdom of God. Amen. God wrote in on that coat that had never been written. Amen. God uses unlikely things, doesn't he? I would have been standing there and someone would have asked me for instructions. The book of Matthew actually said there were two donkeys. Indicates it was mom and a colt. My instructions, my advice would have been, Lord, you probably want to ride that older one. She's been ridden before. She's been broken. She knows how. But Jesus took the unbroken, the untrained, the one that everybody said, no, that, that, that won't work. The Lord said, watch, watch how I use. Watch who I'll use. God uses the available. Somebody said God doesn't use perfect people. He has no pool to draw from. We're all imperfect. God uses broken people. God uses messed up people. God uses people who aren't accomplished, people who aren't trained, who aren't, who aren't polished and perfect. Amen. Aren't you thankful? Amen. Amen. Along the way, I'm quickly coming to a close. Just one more quick thing and we'll, we'll move to close. Jesus moves into Jerusalem that evening. That, that night goes back to Bethany. Beth, Bethany and spends the night and the next day he is headed back to Jerusalem this seven day feast uh, going into the capital city and the Bible says and it's not uh, Matthew especially is not in chronological order but if you read it put all of these things it is on that Monday that Jesus comes into as he's coming to the city of Jerusalem the Bible says that he notices uh, a fig tree along the way he is hungry. He goes to the fig tree. It is in full leaf. In Palestine, if you study the fig trees there, have two crops a year, one in early spring, one in the fall, one at the time of the Passover, one at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the time of the Passover, but the time of the Passover, the figs on the trees, the leaves haven't already, uh, 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 there's not full foliage on the tree. The full foliage is the sign of the, the Feast of Trumpets, the, the figs and the crop that is there. But he sees this tree that is in full foliage, and it is the second crop, the, 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 the fall crop that are the, the largest, the fullest, the sweetest, the juiciest. And Jesus sees this fig tree. He's hungry, and he goes up to it, and he, he finds, as he looks through the leaves, nothing. The context and, and the type here, we understand that 
that God is, uh, it is an analogy of Israel. Israel is the fig tree. We see that through the Old Testament and into the New. And Christ has spent three years in another place. He tells a parable about a fig tree where, uh, where they go to it and there are no figs. And the gardener says, let me dig about it. He has looked for three years. And that is uh, a type and a, a, a shadow or it is a, a symbol of the three years of Jesus' ministry where he has looked for fruit from Israel, especially the leadership of Israel from that comes out that is born out of uh, the law, the Old Testament law. And here he finds that fig tree and it's barren. There is nothing on it. Don't you think it's interesting? The first time we see a fig tree in the Bible is where? Genesis chapter 2. Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the tree. They hide themselves, and when God comes looking for them, He asks that rhetorical question, Adam, where are you? Of course, he knew where Adam was geographically. He wanted Adam to think about, where are you? You're not where I left you. Finally, they, they have a conversation, and they have taken fig leaves and covered their nakedness. God said, who told you you were naked? We, we, we've covered ourselves. The Bible said they made an apron of fig leaves. It is symbolic of the work of man. God said that covering will not work. God, we need something between ourselves and you. We have sinned. We have disobeyed. We'll cover ourselves. God said, no, you won't. That covering won't work. That covering is inadequate. I'm going to take and slay an animal and shed some blood. And the Bible says that he gave them a covering of skin, symbolic of the blood that would be shed, of the covering that would be provided way down the road. First Adam in the garden, encounter with the fig tree. The second Adam, the Lamb of God is on his way to Calvary's cross. He's on his way to a place of sacrifice that's going to erase the stain of sin from all those who in faith come to him. And he has an encounter with the fig tree. He looks on that fig tree at the leaves. There is no fruit. The law doesn't produce any fruit. The covering of man doesn't produce the fruit that God needs to see. And so Jesus steps back and curses the fig tree. You won't be needed anymore. The type and the shadow is about to fade away. The real and the genuine is here. Stand with me, if you will. Amen. We, 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 we like genuine. Somebody comes to me in the parking lot after church. Says, Brother Moody, I've got a Rolex I want to sell you. How much? Well, it's, it's worth $10,000. I'll take five. I don't want a Rolex. But if I did, and if I had that kind of money, you know what the first thing I would check and see? Is it real? Is it genuine? When Christ comes, 
the sacrifice is made. Dies on Calvary's cross. The old is passed away. The fig tree is cursed. Here we go into new era and generation so that we can produce the fruit that we need to produce in our lives. Amen. Closing. Whew, skip a lot of notes. Say thank you, Jesus. Revelation 13 and 8, we started with, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life, of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. We talked about the plan of God. Oftentimes, and, and maybe not you, maybe I'm just talking about myself today. But so many times we, we have a tendency and just casually thinking about the things of God to, to view humanity's history like this. God created Adam, put him in the garden, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, created Eve out of a rib of Adam, a helpmeet for him. God fellowshiped and, and, and spent time with them and enjoyed the company of his creation. One day, Eve was beguiled by the serpent. Adam partook of the fruit, disobeyed God, failed, cast all of humanity into a place of fallenness, away from God, separated to God. And God said, oh no, what are we going to do? How are we going to fix this? And we tend to view Calvary's cross and an empty tomb as a patch on the history, the fabric of humanity's history. See that God, we messed up, but God fixed it. God made it right. Thank you, Jesus. We're happy for that. But the truth of the matter is, brother buddy, the Bible says that before the foundation of the world, God in all of His omniscience, in all of His knowing, in all of His, before He ever created Adam, before He ever put him in the garden and breathed into His nostrils the breath of life, He looked down through the eons of time and He saw Calvary's cross. And He said, humanity is going to fail, but I am going to show my love and benevolence to them by becoming like them and giving myself a, a sacrifice for them. And everything, Calvary's cross, it didn't start in, in Matthew. It didn't start in the New Testament. No, sir. It started long before Genesis chapter 1, God's plan. He began to put things in place so that He could draw you and I to Him. Amen. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this day and what it represents for your word, for showing us, for teaching us. Lord, the things that we need to know to, to show us and open our eyes to your great love. Thank you for Calvary's cross. Thank you for an empty tomb. Thank you for your Holy Ghost that lives on the inside of us. God, we're grateful today. We will celebrate your resurrection. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. God bless you. You can be dismissed for just a few moments, and we will begin second service in just a few minutes.